and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Ingham. So Dr. Steve Ingham has a rich history in high performance sport, having initially worked at the British Olympic Association from 1998 to 2004 as a senior sports physiologist and sports science manager and then after that from 2004 to 2016 as head of physiology and then director of science and technical development with the English Institute of Sport team. So that encompassed leading a team of around 200 sports scientists and support staff for the GB Olympics and Paralympic teams. So that means he is the absolute perfect person today to discuss how you can get the best out of your high performance team. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Steve onto the show. So Steve, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Oh, the, the pleasure is mine. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Until now? Wow. Um, <laughs> wow, that's quite a stretch back in time. So uh, so professionally, I am a sports physiologist by trade, and that was working with, I guess it would have been the, the early Olympic sort of revelation, revolution and revelations in the 90s. Uh, I worked with the British rowing team through the British Olympic Association, um, through to the Sydney and to the Athens Olympics. I led the sports science operation for the Athens Olympic team. I then joined the English Institute of Sport, whereby I was working with uh, British Athletics and supporting that team with a, a foray into coaching Olympians too, through to the Beijing and the London Games. I was also the head of physiology for the, uh, for the English Institute of Sport and then led the whole science operation for the for Rio uh, the Rio Olympics and Paralympics and then stepped off the olympic bus in 2016 and set up our own company our own consulting company supporting champions and I do that with my wife it sounds like a, certainly a move towards something super interesting um although yeah. i'm sure the glitz and the glamour of the olympics and paralympics were also uh, really fun as well yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, there's a little bit of um, of the fact that the whole system has grown rapidly over the years. And um, it's, it's important to remember where we've come from and the, the sort of difficulties that we've had over the years. And um, but equally, um, yeah, running a consultancy has its own pressures, has its own opportunities, has its amazing kind of punch the air moments in itself. So so, that, yeah, that there's very there's a lot of similarities, but but some contrast too. And, and working with your wife must be generally fun, I imagine. I mean, if I worked with my wife the whole time, it wouldn't be that fun. But I mean, I hope at least it's good fun. <laughs> Presume your wife doesn't listen to the podcast. Absolutely so. not. No chance. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it was a real life decision. And um, let's, we said, let's, let's do this together. Let's, let's give it a try. And, um, and, and Rach's background in she was a teacher but then she um studied psychology and while she was studying organizational psychology for her msc i was sort of tearing my hair out uh, this was back in 2008 thinking about this idea of uh, how do we how do we get the staff good how do we get the teams good and she was sort of saying look i know you're busy with this olympic business but could you read my essay on organizational resilience on uh, performing under pressure uh, uh, or communicating in high-performance environments. And I'm like, yeah, give me that <laughs> stuff. Um, 
and so Rachel's background, I mean, she's, she leads our executive coaching work now. And um, that that was a vital aspect of my own development and and showed me there was a whole sphere of, of, uh, of knowledge and practice to actually help people succeed in their work. Uh, and very clearly, Olympic athletes, Olympic teams, Olympic performance directors were turning around to us saying, we need the staff to be better. So that was kind of where it all started. And, and then we've, uh, we've, yeah, we've made a, a business out of it. And we're going to hopefully steal some of that wisdom from you in the, in the coming <laughs> minutes as well. So that brings me on to the first, the first question then. And that's why, why is it then important to consider the impact and the efficiency of a high, of a high performance team? So wh- why is that even important? Well, there's, there's a softer answer which is that it feels progressive. Um, and so if you have an underperforming team, then it's a bit depressing. And it's people languish in this sort of toxicity of poor behaviours, um, underperformance, and, and it doesn't feel good. And so what, what we know fundamentally is that individuals, they like to be supported, but they also like to be challenged. And that's the kind of very definition of, a, of what we'd call a facilitative environment is that I, I, I want to be backed by my boss. I want to be backed by my, by my team members. But if I'm in a situation where everyone's just going, oh, yeah, yeah, just do what you want, then you probably don't really feel challenged. And, and so oftentimes when I've, I've managed people and helped them, I guess, develop through their careers, simply providing them with some clarity about what this is what we'd like you to do and, and and surprisingly some people just turn around and say thank you no one's ever told me that before which is an important responsibility of a leader and manager but but ultimately that you know if this is to me is like a being on a plane imagine being on a plane where the the pilot doesn't know where he's going uh he's not really uh, bothered about having a good conversation about whether the plane's ready to take off with the co-pilot. Imagine that the co-pilot who might be charged with looking after the crew, imagine if he really annoys them just as they're about to do their safety checks. Imagine that you're on this long haul flight, you're spending this sheer amount of time in your career and, and the people that are supposed to be there supporting you are horrible to you. Um, imagine how that feels. And, and also you might be starting to worry about this is not a safe place to be around. <laughs> and we just don't work in this way. Typically people don't have the conversation about how it works with each other. Um, and yet there is so much performance benefit to be had by simply improving the way that we work with each other and understanding that as a skill, it's a craft um, and that we should lean into it. So you've, you've kind of exactly uh, led us onto the next obvious question. And, and that's then, what do you think the biggest areas for improvement are? Because if you say we need to, to have these discussions and we need to make sure that the, there's certain things which are improved or optimized to make sure we're working well as a team, what do you think the biggest ones are in most of the environments that you've seen? So I haven't seen a high-performance environment yet that doesn't have trust in it and so that is a deep understanding you that 
you back each other, you support each other, you are there for each other, you have an understanding of who each other are. So that's an element of empathy that you're committed to a cause. So you turn up when it's when you are required to step up and work and that you have values and that you stick to those. So that's an integrity piece. And so actually, in the same way that you could deconstruct a sport in terms of the athleticism that was required, such as speed or muscle contraction or endurance, uh, you can break down trust into its component parts and start to work on those. But but trust is one of the the, the key uh, start points, really. Uh, but you would typically see uh, blame in an underperformance environment. And, and blame is sort of a, re- a reaction to almost a defensive mechanism. So you can spot the absence of trust through the presence of something like blame. But, you know, I mean, this is, bear in mind that I, I just wanted to sort of talk about clever skin suits and beetroot juice and clever training back in 2008. But now I'm thinking, right, this is interesting because in high performance environments where lives are lost, i.e. SAS, NASA, ambulance workers, et cetera, they culture empathy because they want their teams to be tight. So I'm thinking, well, if they're going to do it, why don't we do it? And so you then think about how do you then develop empathy in a team and, and through, uh, through a system? And then how do you think then we can, we can start to do that? Because obviously it's, it's easy to say we need to trust each other and we need to build empathy. How do you think that we can go about doing that as practitioners? Well, I'll tell you how I did it. This was back in um, 2008, 2009, post Beijing, post that big breath in before the London Olympics hosting, which was a huge responsibility. And we had probably a generation of of people who were sort of in post for the first time and they were elbows out, trying to be grabby, showing off the the the, the best work. And we got together as as practitioners there would often be a lot of showing off, uh, a lot of facade, a bit like you'd go to a conference and and people ask questions, not because they want, they're curious and, and want an answer, but because they want to score points. And so that is a good example of when a team isn't, it's, a, it's just a, an assembly of, of people. It's like a group. And so one of the things that I actually did when I first got um, into that kind of leadership position, I, I, I said to the team, this is my standard. This is the expectation. This is what I will demonstrate as a leader for you. This is what I expect from you too. So you have clarity. And, and if somebody doesn't demonstrate these, I'm going to call it out. And that was not a comfortable thing to be able to do. You know, my heart rate's racing when someone's got a bad attitude and I call that out publicly. You don't have to do that in front of people. Um, so that, there was a, a very much of a, what we call this about setting psychological norms. So how does it run around here? What are the standards of behavior that we need? And that we all agree to, but we also agree to a consequence if it's not there. And that's the tough bit because it's easy to get together and go, oh, yeah, let's let's make a charter and, and have an away day. But actually, you've got to hold it as the standard that you're going to live and work by. But one of the things that I actually did was uh, you know, this is not a technique to copy and paste, but um, I, I said, right, before we get into the technical content, before we get into the science work, let's let's just have a quick question of sport. And I, I made a question of sport. Um, a quick, quick question of sport is a quiz, by the way, for the people who are listening from America thinking, I have no idea what this is and why Sue Barker on my TV. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, have, a, have a look on YouTube. And 
So a quick quiz. I got them into teams, a bit of fun, people t- taking the mick out of each other and so on. And then I sort of thought, God, the reaction, the energy in the room has just changed. People are laughing at each other <laughs> and f- having fun. And I thought, you know what? I've got another round. I'll, I'll roll that out after lunch. And I did that again. Survey feedback comes back about the, the event, the, the CPD session. And the, the scores for that section was through the roof. And we got this organic prompting of, actually, I was wondering if I could have a conversation with you. You know, we, you know, when we were on that team, we were talking about this, you did that. Can I have a chat with you afterwards about this? And so it was the moments of connection that, that really brought people together and probably that they remembered in the journey on the way home. And so thinking imaginatively, almost reverse engineering, how would you go about it? And being brave enough to put some new stuff in place that encourages that spark and that connection where people go, yeah, you know what? Uh, I've I've got a new understanding of you now. I think that's a, a really interesting one. I think that's a, a great way that a, a manager or a leader can get the best out of their stuff. And what I'm interested in as well is to get some more of those, um, those kind of little tips and tricks that you could use or others could use to get the best out of their staff members when you're looking from a, a management perspective. So instead of the, the staff member themselves looking to improve themselves, which we'll get onto maybe later, how does the manager get the best out of their staff members? Well, I think that there's an important um, parallel here with when we work with athletes that often when they, we first start working with them, maybe when they're young and developmental, that they that they are really open minded, that they're open to development because they're not at the top of the mountain. But when they get further into their careers, then actually what we find is that people sort of shut down a little bit. They cl- become a bit, bit close minded here and there. And that's, that tends to be because what got them to the sort of the, 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 to world champion, um, they want to just do that if they get to Olympic champion. And we've got to remember that that's true for ourselves too. And so uh, instilling a culture of feedback is critical for this. I've just put uh, a couple of videos up on YouTube about this too. So, so one for you, if you're not being offered feedback, by your manager, that how you can go about asking for feedback. And that's important um, to a skill to be able to lever that intel from the person that looks after you. Um, secondly, if you're a leader, you should be asking your, your uh, I don't like the word, subordinates, but the people that report to you, you should be asking for feedback too, because that role models a bit of vulnerability too. And then there's different levels in which you can give feedback. And that that, that would be uh, a way of, of starting that off. If you've got a new member of staff uh, to sit them down and say, how would you like us to give feedback to each other? And you get it on the table. It's not a, it's not a thing that is optional. It's we're going to give feedback to each other. Uh, how would you like that? And most people, not always, most people just say, just honest, just open, just, just give it to me straight. I'd much prefer because most people are performance focused, they want to improve and they want to know that. And sometimes it's not easy to hear um, something that maybe is a little bit critical or or, um, or or ways in which they can, you know, broach someone about someone's body language. It's quite tricky to hear. Um, but there are ways in which you can do that. There's something as simple as the, the feedback burger. It's a very tried and trusted technique where you give a positive you give something maybe a little bit negative or constructive, and then you finish with a positive. And also neutralizing some of your terms and your words. Um, so if I said to you, look, Matt, you, 
you did this, it becomes quite accusatory. But if I turn around and say, I saw this with you, then it's a power play. If you said the, the way that, that you presented today, then you start neutralizing your terminology. So you're objectifying it. So those, that's just a bit, a bit of a snake into that idea. But feedback is essential because if you've got that as a tool and a skill, whatever circumstances you, you're going to get, then you're going to be testing, you're going to be learning, you're going to be adapting, you're going to have the information out in front of you. I think mean, that's uh, some absolutely fantastic advice. And I think a lot of people obviously want feedback, but getting it, of course, is, is a little bit different. So obviously receiving feedback can be tricky, but then even, even getting it from your, your peers, right? Even if you're in a, a good program, maybe people don't see you coach. Maybe people don't see your, your sports science reports. And it's very difficult then to, to go to, for example, a head coach and say, Hey, how am I doing when that person maybe can't? Yeah, they can't quite review you on a, a scientific level, but they can find it on a communication level, for example. Um, and that can be really tricky. So it's really good to hear that there are some ways, at least in getting that feedback from people who are in senior positions. Um, and when you look at then the, the individual staff members, so, uh, for example, me as a sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach, uh, whoever it might be, how do they then get the best out of themselves? Because feedback is, or getting feedback is one of those things, but there are obviously hundreds more. So are there any other key things that you think as an individual, that person really needs to be doing ABC? Um, so I don't think high performance teams are defined by a collection of outstanding individuals. So I just, the, the high performance team is defined by the dynamics between people. And, and so the, this fundamental research about high performance teams that shows that time and time again, you can have some outstanding superstars on a team, but that doesn't make a high performance team. Um, and so it doesn't come down to any individual brilliance or qualification or superstar knowledge. Um, but equally, we all have to take personal responsibility for how we turn up. And so uh, from from one point of view, uh, to get curious and understanding about how you influence other people. And so if you're <clears throat> if you're turning up late, um, you're, in a, you're carrying the bad mood from a previous interaction and you're about to work with, a, with an athlete and you haven't got an ability to reset yourself and calm yourself and be able to get into the best place possible for that next interaction, then it's likely that you're going to annoy that person. You're going to be sub, um, subpar in terms of your performance. If you've got your emotional hindbrain firing, you're not going to be thinking clearly. and so. Taking personal responsibility for how you turn up every day, or when, at least when it matters, that's probably the the key start point, is um, is critical. Um, because if you can't do that, then you're not expected to be at your best. And it's likely that the negativity that you bring, we certainly know this from research in teams, will infect others. And I say that word very deliberately: infection of others, because one person having a bad mood, bad behavior in a meeting means that everyone tends to descend to that level. So you've got to be thinking about ways in which you can encourage and inspire, enthuse other people and not infect others. Um, and I think then equally, the, the step on from that is about how you start then partnering with people. It's likely that 
you can get some acceleration in a in a high performance team with some partnerships. So maybe somebody you've got a really strong, open, candid working relationship with, you start encroaching and start developing conversations about how are we working, not what are we working on, not what's the agenda, what's the schedule, what's the what's the programming. It's how do we do this and start to get very good at doing that. I think it's excellent stuff. And the, the things that we've touched on so far have been the, the coaches and the bosses, but I'm also interested to hear from the athlete's perspective as well. How do you think that the athlete themselves can get the best out of the stuff around them? Because this is, this is an interesting conversation about all of the inner workings of a, a team from the staff perspective. But at the end of the day, that most teams claim at least to be athlete centered. So how does the athlete then get the best out of their staff? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's evolving. Uh, so, and I'd include coaches into the equation with this too, in that 20 years ago, coaches were one-on-one with an athlete that it was just them against the, their competitors. And, and so they had to strike up a personal relationship and a way of working. And now with the advent of a team, team in support of, of athletes, then there's a change in dynamic where the the coach typically maybe in this instance an athlete is actually it's almost like a manager it's like a leader they're coordinating the the effort and setting the priorities setting the the requirements um and then prioritizing that because one of the things that i i think is coming for support teams is streamlining where a lot of people create a lot of noise a lot of the time and if they do that then they're making it more complex for the decision maker and if an athlete is in a position about deciding about what goes into the mix what well, the, the last thing they need is is a muesli of uh, of a breakfast they want a nice laid out ordered prioritized this is where your attention needs to be today and I think probably your your question almost alludes to a future uh, uh, athlete which is, who is equipped to be able to harness the information around them. Um, and so I would encourage athletes and, co- and coaches to be asking good questions such as, what is the priority? Do I really need to be doing that? What's your evidence? How do you actually know that this is useful for me? And scrutinizing the input. Uh, and as a support practitioner, that's not always comfortable, but it will mean that your level goes up because you're you're being asked those questions by the the, the point of use, the person who's actually going to use the information and, and benefit from it. I think that's really interesting. And what kind of skills do you then think that the athlete needs in terms of uh, communication skills, questioning skills, but also maybe, uh, for example, knowledge of of certain subject areas? What kind of skills do you think the athlete needs to achieve that kind of autonomy i I don't always know and think that the athlete needs to because it depends um so we had alistair brownlee on the podcast and he was incredibly impressive to to share the level of depth and knowledge and interest and and know-how and and grasp of nearly every of the sports science disciplines that supports him he almost he knew more about knees than his physio did and and so when you've got that level of engagement that's great 
and it's wonderful because there's somebody's receptive and they're hungry and they're and they're engaged in the process. It's not always useful though. Um, many athletes that I've worked with, you actually need to strip a lot of it back. And so rather than skilling them up uh, in terms of knowledge base, um, I think it's more about enabling them to be more discerning what as to what their attention needs to be on. And so, for example, when I've worked with certain athletes who are obsessive about the details and they get wound up and stressed and physiologically, that's not a good thing for them because they're, they're probably not going to be adapting as much. It's going to be quite stressful and anxiety ridden for them. Um, my job is to lift them up and think about the big goal, their big purpose, the, 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 the reason that they do this, this uh, sport, as opposed to worrying about that split time or that part of the, of the, um, of the detail. And so overloading athletes with more and more and more is not a recipe for optimizing. And so it, it very much depends. But I think if I was to strip it all the way back to your, your original question, it's allowing athletes to be more discerning about where their attention and their efforts get spent. And that's some absolutely fantastic advice for all the athletes listening for sure. Um, and before we wrap up, I want to ask you the most difficult question that we could imagine. And that is, what is the one thing that you see or do differently, which the rest of the world can learn from? Um, I think that there is you talking about me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've got to, I've got to try and say something positive about myself. <laughs> it's a horrible situation to be put in. I'm sorry. Um, I don't see anybody at the moment leaning in and developing practitioners nearly at the, the level that I think is necessary. And I think we have a general neglect for people in education uh, that they are being taught the what, not the how. I think that we don't make enough room and space for professionals to grow and learn and develop. Um, and I don't think there is honesty and clarity enough for people to thrive. And, and, and evidence for this would be when people have a right old Twitter storm about such and such paid post is, is being paid pittance at a premiership club. Well, the CEOs will pay when they're good. And so what I'm trying to create, develop with some of our courses and our online community is a safe place for people to learn and develop fast, faster and more comprehensively than we ever were. I just, I see the pain points because I've had to sack people. Um, I've had people phoning me up and moaning about the, the standard of performance. Um, and with this is sort of general malaise there. I think we're all responsible uh, to make things better for our profession. And, um, and if anyone's listening that, that wants to get in touch, then please do. But I, um, yeah, I think that's probably the one area that I look around the world and think, I'm not sure anybody is, is developing practitioners. So why not? I'll do it. <laughs> uh, I think from what we discussed today, at least, uh, you'll be doing a very good job of it because there's some really clear, defined ways of, uh, of going about things. And, um, yeah, where, where then can people find? you and where can they find out more information if they want to better themselves as a practitioner so go to supportingchampions.co.uk uh that's that's our home um if you go to supportingchampions.co.uk 
www.co.uk forward slash online course, you can see the catalogue of courses from the, the, the bridge all the way from somebody that the first realisation about thinking about their career in that initial thought, all the way through to proven practitioners about how they can uh, grow and develop. That, that includes courses such as setting up your own consultancy, for example, not just those people that are employed. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and at support underscore champs. And we're on Instagram and LinkedIn under the same name, supporting champions. So yeah, get, look us up and, uh, and get in touch. Absolutely fantastic. So Steve, massive thanks for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking and uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, hopefully speaking to you again sometime soon. Nice one, Matt. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Steve for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is a series of mini lectures broken down to bite-sized chunks. So all you need to do, if you want to take your development to the next level, is click the link in the show notes where you'll get a seven-day free trial to the Coach Academy, meaning you can access all of those fantastic courses completely for free. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, I would also really appreciate it if you can give us a like and a share on social media. That means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.